The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that come from loss. I'm so happy to have you with me today. Please like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect with me on LinkedIn. I also have grief-related boards on my Pinterest page. Just started that. That's a lot of fun. All those links are on the Good Grief Post page at Voice America. Take a few moments to see which interviews might speak to you, too. Today, I'm welcoming Melissa Dalton-Bradford. Melissa is an author, independent scholar, public popular public speaker, wife, and bereaved mother, who has published essays, poetry, and two books, Global Mom, a Memoir, and On Loss and Living Onward, Collected Voices for the Grieving and Those Who Would Mourn with Them. She holds a BA in German and an MA in Comparative Literature, speaks, reads, and writes fluent German, French, and Norwegian, is conversant in Mandarin, is studying Italian, and has taught language, humanities, and writing on the university level. She and her husband Randall have built their family in Vienna, Hong Kong, Oslo, Paris, Munich, Singapore, Geneva, and are presently moving to Frankfurt. It was in the middle of a major move from Paris to Munich that the Bradfords lost their son Parker as he attempted to save the life of a fellow student caught in a lethal hidden whirlpool. The loss catapulted Melissa into the most foreign world of all, the entirely alien but transformative land of loss. Welcome to Good Grief, Melissa. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, very, very glad. I've enjoyed our conversations before this, and I know we will today. I feel like maybe it's a little cosmic that the author of a book about many moves between countries and internal states is at this very moment in a hotel room having just made another move. <laughs> but, <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on the show right at that kind of moment. <laughs> well, you know what? This is pretty typical of my life, so I think it's representative of what I'm all about. I've got suitcases all around me, I'm doing laundry in a laundromat, and I saw a moving truck drive off into the sunset today. So, oh, my goodness. I, <laughs> <laughs> I hope we're not waking up anybody over there, too, because it's a lot later there than here. 
Oh, it's okay. Anytime is great to talk with you on your show. <laughs> <laughs> I loved reading both your books. Uh, your your powers of description are so keen, and uh, I just felt I was there, honestly. Oh. There were so many times I was saying, I've had that experience. Yes, I've felt that way. And um, I also felt like by the time I finished reading both the books, I developed a pretty deep love for Parker, oh. your son, uh, if that makes sense, you know, just from reading about him. He seemed sure. such a special person. He's a big presence. He, he was in mortality, and he continues to be. Mm. Yeah. In fact, somebody, at, I think it was a school administrator at, at the school from which he graduated just a month before this accident that took his life. The administrator said, his presence was so large that his absence is booming. And um, there, there are people like that, aren't there, who are sort of forces of nature, and that's what Parker was like from, from the beginning until the very end. Yes. You know, I just got to notice that my sound is not working well, so we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back, listeners. Okay. Stick with us right after a minute. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back, everybody. Live radio is live radio, and things do happen, so I hope you hung, hung out with us while we fixed the problem. And I'm back here with Melissa Dalton Bradford talking about the loss of her son, Parker. Um, I was saying before we went to that short break just how much I was moved by him and his presence, what a big presence he did seem to be in, in life and still. Yes, that's right, and that's an important thing to say to add, add to that, Cheryl, is that my experience has been that his presence continues, and that is a, an integral part of my grief experience, is that um, while death ends a life, I've, I haven't experienced that death has ended a relationship, and so the continuation of that relationship has been very important for me and for my family. And... Um, that takes a special kind of living and maybe peculiar way of imagining or exercising one's vision or, or faith to believe that one continues to have some degree of connection with those people that pass from our, our mortal circle, if you know what I'm talking about. 
I absolutely do. And I, mm-hmm. and I also feel it takes really grieving the loss of what being in, on the earth together means. Yeah. Uh, I know for me, I couldn't get to a place of feeling I'd, I'd um, reform that relationship on different terms with my wife until I'd mm-hmm. actually uh, come to terms with her not being here with me anymore. Was that your experience? Yeah. Exactly. That's very well put. I love that word, to reform the relationship. Um, it's, it's very challenging, I think, to, to somehow gather a community that will do that with you because we experience each other in this life in communities, don't we? We have this mm-hmm. network of relationships that we work through, and Parker was part of a basketball team, and he was part of a volleyball team. He was part of a high school class. And, and uh, when the person then disappears from our sight, then we need to be able to continue to experience or memorialize or discuss that person as they aren't with us in mortality. And what I think cultures want to do, at least Western cultures, and particularly American culture, is to jump over that grief. They want to bungee jump sort of over (laughs) the valley of death, as I put it, because it's unpleasant, it's painful, and we do have kind of a, perhaps a compelling need to rush through things. We want to tidy things up and tie Mm -hmm. them up and get over things, right? Yes. just like you're saying, I, I, I believe I have experienced myself and I've observed it in so many people that you need to face and, and enter into that full experience of loss, just like you said, with your wife. You need to face that and go into it to appreciate the love that you shared, to appreciate the dimensions of that relationship, and then to reform it into something else. I think that, yes. I think we're talking about the same thing, aren't we? I, I think we absolutely are, and to and to um, maybe in a sense see what you're made of too, that you can yes. actually actually tolerate that we can actually tolerate as human beings uh, deep emotion, yeah, deep deep emotion, and come out the other end of it. Uh, I do think that changes our capacity to kind of open to. Uh, greater relationship as well. I agree. I, I agree. The word that's coming to my mind as you're talking is fear. I think that fear uh, functions, unfortunately, as a blockade to what you're talking about, which is good grief. Fear to enter into it ourselves, those of us who are bereaved. Fear that I mean, I remember holding my arms around my rib cage, certain that I was going to explode. Mm. I was going to somehow just shatter into a million shards that this pain was going to, it was going to kill me and it was going to kill those around me. Um, I had never experienced the physical pain of the psychic trauma. And in, people in don't talk extent. about that, do they? No, no, no. <laughs> but it's absolute physical nature. <laughs> Oh, pardon me, go ahead. The absolute physical nature of grief. Yes, yes, it becomes a part of your medical record. That's what I have learned, that it should be one of the first things that we'd let uh, medical professionals know. And, And when I had sensitive doctors and I said, you know, within a few months or a year or a couple of years after this 
traumatic loss that I was a bereaved mother. They stopped mid-phrase and they made a note and they said, oh, well, that, that changes everything. That helps us understand what's going on physically because they're physical manifestations of this kind of trauma that we experience. And when I think of fear also, I think that those who are observing a friend or a family member who is bereaved, fear also blocks them from approaching and from entering. We hear so many times, I was afraid of saying anything. I was afraid of saying the wrong thing, so I didn't say anything, so I never talked to you. And as you and I both know, because we've talked about this, right, Cheryl, that exacerbates the pain. That's the worst wrong thing. Yeah, the worst wrong thing is doing absolutely absolutely nothing. nothing. Or I guess the second worst wrong thing is trying to pretend around it. I was I was very moved by a couple of passages in your book where you talked about people. I was remembering the the when you took your kids to the park and the woman said, "Well, at least you have three left." So ripping that statement would be at that moment. Right, all of that minimizing language that the best, the best people, the people with the best intentions that they use innocently, uh, it's just, or if, or it's only, or well, at least, grief, major grief is beyond any proportion that most of us can comprehend. Mm-hmm. And so when we use language like, well, it's just, or well, at least, or if, or it's only, that tries to minimize something that can't be minimized, and immediately that's, that's just disregarding somebody's pain, isn't it? And it Absolutely. Hurts. It hurts so much. Yeah, that, it's interesting how our culture seems to sort of imply that grievers will be better off if you don't bring it up, and yet grievers are in it all the time. Right. <laughs> Most grievers <laughs> can't get away from it. Well, that's so. exactly it. Yes, and, and I, I, I wrote a particular essay in the On Loss and Living Onward book where it's an encounter with my own beloved parents who, for several weeks after we walked out of a funeral, got on an airplane, flew to a new country, and started to establish ourselves as the walking dead in a new language, a new culture, everything, my parents thought that it would be best to not bother us. Mm. They thought that if we mm. didn't contact them, we must have been doing well enough, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and, it, and it became such a searing pain for me when we finally contacted one another and sort of uh, tried to gain understanding and patch things up. Their comment was, well, we didn't want to remind you of your loss. We didn't want to bring up anything that would somehow be associated with a drowning or water or a sun. But what my loving parents, my wise parents, but my parents ignorant to major grief. Major grief. Right. They didn't understand that. You can never remind someone in major grief of what is wallpapering their mind all the time. Absolutely. It's always there. I thought you captured some of that essence in the excerpt you sent me. Could you read that before we go to break? Yes, certainly. Uh, let the me, resurrection section. Would you like me to read about um, 
the, so the, section, the section on resurrection, Melissa. Oh, yes. Let me read that. Let me read that. Resurrection is for those on both sides of the tomb, writes Minister Laura Mendenhall in a eulogy given at the funeral of an infant girl. Of that truth, I am living proof. When your most beloved dies, when your profoundly bonded flesh and blood dies, you die too. It seems the inviolable law of nature. My death manifested itself physically, the heart palpitations, the anvil on my chest for months on end, the weakness, the fatigue, the overwhelming longing for endless blue-black drifts of oceanic sleep. My child's death also marked the zero point, meridian of my life. Everything I know is measured as before and after that split. Resurrection, the metaphorical one, takes both a staggering amount of effort and a continuance of God's life-giving grace over, over a very long period of time. It takes much more work and far more grace and many more years than anyone uninitiated to traumatic loss seems to fully realize. Like a literal resurrection, our family's resurrection began from underground. We were buried in sorrow, entombed in grief. Our family had been in the middle of a move from Paris to Munich when we lost Parker. We entered a new geographic world at the same moment we entered the alien land of loss, which translated into an extreme kind of isolation. Isolation complicated our grief, but it offered us solitude as well, which we needed. Our souls instinctively needed darkness and retreat, a wilderness place apart a certain protection from the glaring and blaring invasion of the world at large. This first inclination, though we didn't know it at the time, had an ancient name, Avalut. And after we come back from, great, from break, uh, Cheryl, maybe we can talk more about what Avalut meant for me and for my family. Absolutely. I'd like okay. to do that. Okay. So uh, we'll do that when we get back. And listeners, during the break, go to the Good Grief Host page to connect with me in whatever your favorite way is. I know I have listeners all over, the, all over the world, and that's truly amazing. I continue to be honored by the global listeners. Here's a few more countries where people are listening. Canada, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Thank you for being with me. Please send me an email or message me on Facebook and let me know how you're responding to my guests. And if you'd like to learn more about Melissa, you can connect to her blog at melissadaltonbradford.wordpress.com or at Familius Press, her publisher. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. Today, I'm talking with Melissa Dalton Bradford, an author whose book, On Loss and Living Onward, is about the death of her 18-year-old son. So before the break, um, you said you'd like to talk more about Avalut. Avalut. I would love to hear more about that. Well, I... I didn't know what that word was. I didn't know that it existed before I had lost, we had lost our son and we had moved to a new country. We were absolutely isolated and uh, I was researching, trying to understand what this experience was that we were having and how people survived it and if it was even survivable. And in all of my research, I discovered different cultures' ways of of responding to major loss, and one of the methods that struck me was what is done in the Jewish culture. It's called avalut, and an avo is a person who has either lost a parent or lost a child and then goes into a kind of a concentrated 
period of of study, they remove themselves from their normal social interactions, and they don't they don't watch TV, they don't read magazines, they're not surfing the internet. They're they're earnestly studying to get greater spiritual understanding. Mm. And I did it instinctively. I didn't know that this had a name or that this was part of of Jewish um, mourning traditions, but I sort of went into retreat. And um, because I didn't know anyone, no one knew me, no one knew that I was normally sort of a type A personality, and I was always the hostess having people at my home, I, I just couldn't do it. I was completely drained of energy. It was hard enough just lifting the corners of my mouth. Do you know that feeling, yes. Cheryl? Yes, absolutely. But that completely laid flat. I, I was having a hard time walking upstairs. I felt 40 years older than I was. And I, I went into retreat and I studied and studied. I was, I was hunting for something. I was hunting for meaning, light, strength. I was hunting for a community from what I, what I was studying. And I was specifically reading scripture, of, of many different faiths, of my own faith, of I studied memoirs of great natural disasters and of the Holocaust and just the best literature that I could find that bore witness of loss and being able to survive it and survive it well. And even though in the middle of it I thought, this is torturous. I can't believe that we're trying to live without any community to understand our sorrow and to speak our son's name. In retrospect, I realized that that was one of the greatest gifts of my life because I, I was able to completely enter this experience, the psychic trauma. I was completely um, permitted to be sad and mm. to weep mm. and to uh, seek for spiritual guidance. And I think if I would have stayed in the former life that we had had before we moved, I might have felt compelled either by myself or by my own circle of friends to get back, get back to the old person. Do you know what I mean? Yes. We want you back. We, we want you to be better, so we want you to be the person that you were from before. Did you ever hear that? Sure. Perk up. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. We, we're frightened, Cheryl. You're, you're still sad. It's been six weeks. It's been two months. It's been six months. When are you going to get over this? Did you ever hear that? Uh, fortunately, my, my community, the people I really let in, uh, yeah. had been with us for eight to ten years of illness. Uh, so they right. were pretty well vetted. I think I that that's a very different experience. So they didn't they didn't rush me. So that mm. was good. But of course, that doesn't apply to the outside world, right? You know, the to all the other people that, you encounter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That are frightened. People are frightened by sorrow. People, particularly, I think, from my research and from my own experience, I think, particularly in in the Western world. Um, I agree I might with that. Be wrong about that, but especially, especially, I think, in America, where we do worship, um, we worship youth. We are, we feel a sort of a, 
an obligation to live the happy life, and if anything challenges that or isn't part of that perpetually happy template, something's wrong, right? We need that. Absolutely. We need to fix it. <laughs> and and we, I think our culture, for all of its wonderful strengths, might have this one weakness that we set a timeline for grief, and we want people happy fast. We want people well. <laughs> That's and yes, that, I, and that yes. in and of itself can can deepen someone's grief. It makes us feel like I remember feeling myself. There's something wrong with me. Other people are feeling better about the loss of my son. I am I supposed to feel better now? Mm. Is there something wrong with me? Um, am as I if with the, as if that would be proportional to what you were going through. Well, precisely. You've that's. That's exactly the problem, that we should be feeling better, um, that that's somehow a sign of our strength, of our resilience, of our, of our will. Um, but I, I don't hold to that. I don't, I don't believe that. I, think that. I think that grief is proportionate to the depth of our love and commitment, that uh. <laughs> it isn't a contradiction of one's emotional wellness. In fact, I think that being able to enter into one's sorrow might very well be a sign of emotional wellness and emotional honesty and the willingness to be vulnerable and even to let other people see you broken. That might be even a sign of emotional maturity. Absolutely. do you do you understand what I'm saying? I absolutely um, do. You you've made me think about something, which is that in the thirty or so years that I've been a grief counselor, I can I can remember many times working with people who lost a parent young. Mm-hmm. I have never worked with someone who lost a parent young, whose family was open about the loss. Ah. Uh. Uh, it's always people sad. whose families shut it down. Shut it down and said we're not going to talk about it because some of talking about it either is going to make it worse or we're going to we're going to be wallowing. Exactly. Um, we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Um, it frightens other people. Uh, there are many different reasons, I think. I'm sure myriad yeah. of motivations and- for not being not being vulnerable and not showing how sad we are. I think that it's an honest response to break down and, and keen and wail. That's, that's an honest response. And it's, how wonderful. It's hardwired. It, <laughs> yes. It would be a healthy response, I believe, if we as a community could say, let's all wail together. I mean, I think immediately of other cultures. My friend Bonti, who's Botswana, when, when I told her, about the loss of our son, she stopped dead in her tracks. We were walking together and she said, you know, when my father died suddenly, let me tell you what we do in Botswana. Mm. Here's what they do in Botswana. Um, All of the village is involved in the mourning of this life and people are sent to neighboring villages to come in and visit the bereaved family. The dead is laid out on a table in the home, in the small hut or in the small home, And that body lies there on the table behind, I find this interesting, behind a transparent veil. So the body is still there, but it's inhabiting a different realm. And then the bereaved, 
in this case, it was Bonte's mother and then the children. They stand in front of this body, and then one by one by one, the village members come, and they greet, let's say it was the wife of this young father who died. And the interaction that takes place there is is critical because the mother then, the wife, needed to, with every villager, tell the story of the death. And so you can imagine, this takes a long time. This is a commitment of time on all of the villagers' part. But why do you think she would do that? Well, the reason that she is required to tell the story is because that story then becomes real to her. That narration helps implant the story in her body. She can feel it. It becomes real to her. And then what happens to the listener is that the listener becomes a participant in that story. They know. They are also responsible for that story, and they go and they tell everyone else. So it becomes a communal experience, and they all weep together, and they all share the story together, and the narration, the story of that person's life continues among all of that village. Don't you think that's beautiful? Very beautiful. And it also fits with something I know about trauma, which a loss is a trauma, uh, yeah. that, that uh, people in trauma need to repeat. They need to tell the story over and over. Yep. That it's yep. really part of healing. So I think of it in that way, too. Yes, yes. I, I read an article, someone was very kind to send it to me, uh, that was showing the most recent studies about what they call complicated grief, or in the vernacular, stuck grief, when people maybe years, years down the line have still not been able to reform their relationship, as you put it, or integrate that loss into their ongoing life. And they found something that they say is remarkable, and I thought, well, this makes sense to me. If they just sit down if the bereaved are just able to sit down with someone who is an active listener of the story, and if they're able to recount their loss, recount the life, recount the details, something becomes unstuck. They become dislodged. They're able then to integrate it into their life. So we need to be able to, if we, if we want to, we need to be able to talk and share, and there needs to be a listening Ear. It's not because we don't have a story to tell. It's because we yes. don't have ears that want to listen empathetically. Do you know, you know what I'm th- saying? That seems, that seems like a beautiful moment to tell the story of Lars. Oh, you're right. Could, yeah. you, could you read that story yes, for us? I will. That this experience? From, <laughs> yes, thank you. Oh, I'm glad you asked me to read this one. This is from my, my first book, Global Mom, a Memoir. And this, um, the chapter is called Monastery. And uh, I'm just explaining here about the different responses from different people who didn't know us at all. Uh, let me begin reading the story of Lars. It's very touching for me, so I hope I can do it without tearing up. Oh, that's okay if you do. That's okay if I do, isn't it? <laughs> Lars is straight from the cast of The Sound of Music, blonde, blue-eyed, with a bank of snow-white teeth, as quick and light on his feet as a Bavarian leprechaun, perfectly p- proportioned, and perhaps 31, or 19, ageless. He's murmuring along with Celine Dion, his German accent does wonders for her English, who's piped into the salon where I've arrived for a long overdue trim. Lars tries to make small talk while admiring our mirrored reflection. 
me, stiff and old in the chair, him elfin and nimble on his toes. I sense under my lips a polite smile trying to emerge from hibernation. I've not been able to smile since July, months ago. But I just don't have that kind of strength. Lars hums and sections off hair, cooing, crooning, and combing. But I'm so clogged with anguish, I sit frozen, fearing what will come out of my mouth if I open it. My mind scampers ahead, frenzied, trying to plot escape routes around the inevitable question about family and children. At the rate Lars is talking, we'll hit that question head-on before he takes his first snip. Life's short, he says, stretching smooth a swath of my hair, scissors held at attention. There's never enough time to love the people who matter the most to us. My scampering panic stops like I've pinned its tail under my boot. My throat constricts. You're right, Lars. And where this came from, I'll never know. I buried my oldest son four months ago today. Scissors in his right hand, frozen. Length of my hair held taut in the left hand. Neck craned forward and eyes narrowing, he asks, What? I repeat myself whispering that it costs me my composure. Lars drops hair, scissors in both his arms, hangs his head in a slow side-to-side shake, turns from the mirror to me, tears welling up in his eyes, and with a scarcely audible groan, bends toward me to wrap my shoulders in a hug. Oh, no, no. I am so sorry, so sorry. Not everyone can be a lachs, and because he was just so unusual and I was so vulnerable, I went back to him again and again, even when my hair didn't need a trim. One day in the late spring, I found myself reclining in his salon chair, my hair a wad of suds, last working the scalp, when he asked me something truly bizarre, even inconceivable. So, if you're a singer, he said, why have you never sung anything for me? Sung anything? Oh, I hadn't been able to sing for anyone since Parker's funeral. Uh, like a song? A song, yes, why not? You love to sing. He finished sudsing. I want you to sing for me. I closed my eyes and let Lars rinse warm water through my hair. As was always the case when I allowed myself to go a quarter inch beneath the surface of my thoughts, my mind went first to a dry, hot July and an ominous irrigation canal in Idaho. Behind my eyelids, I felt the swift seep of tears. And where should I sing for you? I held my eyes closed while salty memories drizzled down my temples and into the water spraying my hair. The soothing gush of Lass's rinse melted every taut, anxious, self-protective, and throbbing boundary of my spirit, and I was taken back to a warm laundry room where I was watching my own hands folding my children's clothing. Those small, empty limbs of cotton tights. Those flattened undershirts. My hands stroking their fibers, their feathery voices in the next room. And then my mind's eye looked out a window 
on the soundproofing of tumbling, eternal, harmless, and unharmed Norwegian snow. Where should you sing? Well, where else? Lars laughed once. Here, of course. And now, I sputtered lightly, a tactic that should have deflected his request, but he didn't let this one go. He kept rinsing, now more slowly, tenderly, and gently stroked the last suds from my hairline. In my mind, I opened the small window, the one that looked out onto the gorge padded with a white comforter bolted in place with quiet, wise pines. I watched my hand open up that window. I felt my mouth open slowly, taking in the brisk Norwegian air as water flushed a world of anguish out of my head and down the salon drain. So beautiful. Mm. Time for a break. We'll be back in a few minutes. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. We've been talking with Melissa Dalton Bradford, an author whose two books on loss and living onward and global mom are deep expressions of both her global existence living all over the world and the death at 18 of her firstborn son, Parker. And I I love that section about Lars because... Those kind of angels, mm-hmm. they just stick in your heart forever, don't they? They do, and I can't even read that passage without getting very choked up every time I read through it to myself or, or to a listening audience. I, I'm, I'm reminded of the goodness. There is so much goodness in just basic human beings, the people on a bus stop, the people who are your administrators at school, your hairdresser. There is an innate goodness, I think, that I've been awakened to. I've been Mm -hmm. amazed at those sort of angelic helpers that have popped up in the most unlikely places. 
and I think that if we are, I think that if we if we can remain open to the possibility of that love being there to catch us when we're falling, then we will be greatly blessed, and uh, and and we'll we won't curl up into sort of a like a snail shell of bitterness because that's a great temptation to retreat from humanity and to become cynical when you've had a a blow, a hard loss. That was yes. a great temptation for me mm. um, to just retreat forever. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you, you meet a loss and you think, there are more people like that out there and they will join with me in this. And then you realize, I mean, when I found out more about Lars, this hairdresser, he had his own stories of searing loss, alienation from people hurt. There are many different forms of loss, as you know, and Sure, and uh, and and so we can, we can all help one another. All of us who are shot through with grief, uh, we can be there for one another, one another, and be empathetic and supportive, and uh, and listen to one another's pain. And don't you think? Uh, at least I believe there's a natural kind of outpouring when uh, you've made that connection that grief is universal. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, people make that through grieving. Um, yes. There's a natural outpouring when you sense in another person that they're experiencing that. Don't you find? That's right. That's right. It's that that instantaneous connection when you look into someone else's eyes and you have author Joan Didion, wonderful American author who talks yes. about the loss of her both her husband and her daughter within a short span of time. She says that people who have experienced traumatic loss have a certain look, and I agree with her. There's sort of a peeled-back, open-eyed look when you're fresh in grief. And when you can look into someone's eyes and just know that I'm going to be safe here, I'm going to be understood, something, I dare use the word sacred, that something Mm. sacred can happen when we connect. That's a deep, deep a level of, of humanness that we enter into when we're touching on those sacred areas in other people's lives and we're treading really on, on holy ground when we enter someone's world of, of loss and vulnerability, don't you think? Um, Absolutely. A kind of a spiritual preparation, I think, for someone like you who specializes in counseling people who've had great trauma. That is, I believe... That is a, a kind of a, a sacred experience and, and requires the best in all of us. Um, and it's where we, where we meet on the deepest levels of humanity. I and think that's, that's, that's of course, part of why I am so moved to do this show, because mm-hmm. I, have, I get to have those experiences of talking with people every week. It's very moving mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you bring up sacred, the word sacred, um, kind of moves into something else I really want to be sure we talk about, um, yeah. which is I thought you you really did a good job. You have a particular faith yeah. um, that's very strong, that's very evident in your, in your writing. But I think no matter what, uh, most of us believe something. <laughs> you know <laughs> about what's bigger than we are and i thought you did such a an amazing uh job of putting those two together faith and and grief yeah. which often are so separated 
you know, if right. we have faith, uh, we shouldn't grieve or, um, you know, somehow uh, we're, we're denying this larger truth if we feel bad about our loss. Right. Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned that. You know, my, you mentioned my faith. I'm a deeply devoted Christian, and um, I don't have to look any farther than my master, my exemplar, who's Jesus Christ. If you read in the book of John in the New Testament, here was Christ himself <laughs> who was going to raise Lazarus from the tomb in a matter of minutes. But there's this powerful verse that for me is key to understanding the interrelationship between faith and grief. And the verse has two words, Jesus wept. He knew himself that life was going to go on. He knew himself that he had power over death, but he wept. And why? Because this God had, was the embodiment of also the fullness of humanity. To be really, really divine is to be really human, as Christ showed me, at least in that verse, that even though he had power, he wept. He was a god of passion, and and that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to love people so much that my heart is torn when I'm separated from them. Um, I want to be invested in relationships so that I grieve when they are interrupted or when they have to be reformed in some way. I, I want that to be part of, of who I am. I don't think that they are contradictory terms at all, grief and faith. I think that they are, they are cousins um, that are, our faith, our love, our devotion to humanity informs the depth of our grief, not the opposite. That's my own take on it. <laughs> and, and I do agree, and also that... Um uh there's there's a danger in thinking god however we think of god is there to prevent bad things mm-hmm. because then if bad things happen we're forsaken <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know but right. i i sort of felt as if you felt you i, I got the sense you felt accompanied more I, more than does that word fit I for never you felt, <clears throat> i didn't feel forsaken i did i was frightened though i thought Wait, God couldn't protect me from this? Mm-hmm. Really? God could not protect, He couldn't warn or make this not happen? There yes. are great ironies that we, you, you wrestle with, right? You wrestle with these tremendous Absolutely. ironies that one person lives and another doesn't. And uh, that's just the nature of mortality. But as, as a great preacher, William Sloan Coffin, great sort of activist and preacher of the Riverside Church in, in New York City said, he said, God doesn't give us protection as much as God gives us ultimate support. Mm-hmm. God gives us ultimate support because we can't be protected from everything in mortality. And to approach mortality thinking that somehow we're going to be immune from mortality is an illusion. <laughs> it's an illusion. And uh, we, we're almost out of time. I'd love to yes. talk with you for two hours. But oh, I, I wanted to mention one thing and then have you read um, the final passage, the which is about what we're talking about. Yes. Uh, this idea really, really captured something. Uh, you said something like, this is paraphrased, where God is, that's where I find my son. That's I, right. I, I think that's so very beautiful. <laughs> that's right. So I, that's I wanted right. to closer, make sure listeners yes, heard closer, that. 
Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. The closer I can be to God, the closer I sense my yes. son. Yes. And so my goal is to live as closely as I can to my my interpretation of, of God is greater so than that yourself. I can feel my son there. Let's have yeah. you read that, that final uh, part of your book. Yes. I would love to. I would love to. This is actually from the introduction of On Loss and Living Onward. Today, almost seven years after Parker was taken in an early harvest that plowed our souls right open, I finished this book. I lovingly pass it on to you. Its essays recount our family's intimate experience with major obliterating loss and our life's road as it is rolled on before us with both its potholes and its landmarks of bright-burning spiritual significance. Its quotes are like the flecks of gold I have finally brought to the surface after mining for so long at the center of the earth. It is, however, only an outward token of our family's grief and a tangible proof of my absolute. Because what I can't pass on and what can't be sampled vicariously is the experience of this journey itself. Our descent into the necessary weight and waiting that are part of being instantly buried alive and then slowly resurrected have revealed much to us. We have felt on our very chests the suffocating tonnage of the grave and of grave realities. We have felt detached from life up there on the surface. We have felt at times terrified and often quite alone. We have even walked hunched over like we lived forever in underground tunnels or were just creeping out of our own graves. But what the tomb teaches. In its isolation and obscurity, you see and sense what is hardly visible or palpable in broad daylight. Somewhere there as you wait on the Lord as you lie flat, motionless, arms wrapped over your shredded heart, holding your breath, or weeping aloud, you feel the hint and muted hum of light reverberating within that tomb, within your soul, a vibration coming from a source nearby. Of course, it was there all along, that lucent presence, that light that shineth in the darkness, but you couldn't comprehend it. In your agony and desperate disorientation, you couldn't comprehend it. In silence, in retreat, in your necessary entombment, your soul gradually reorients itself, and with a slow turn, you see the source of that soft vibration. You realize he was seated next to you in that darkness, quietly waiting, his eyes mellow and steadying, his hands resting calmly on your head, emitting real heat. There, touched by God's incandescent grace, your grave is transformed into a bed of rebirth. Your cold body is warmed to new life. Noiselessly, he stands, and you, drawn by ardor, Follow as he rolls away the stone with an outstretched finger. Just one glance and you understand that he's asking that you re-enter the world with its sometimes blinding sunlight and frequent neon facsimiles. He's asking that you follow him from death 
to a new life, which you gratefully give back to him. And so, once again, raising us from either grave sin, grave sorrow, or from the grave itself, Christ has conquered death. Melissa, thanks so much for being here today. And if you want to reach either of us, just go to my host page at Good Grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.